1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll go ahead and read beginning in verse 1. That'll kind of get us oriented to our sermon text, which is verses 5 through 23. But let's go ahead and begin at the very beginning of the chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving as mere, uh, only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we want to thank you for gathering us in your sanctuary to have fellowship with you. Thank you for sharing yourself with us. Thank you for inviting us into relationship with you. Lord, there is nothing more glorious than that. And, and so, Father, we pray as you reveal yourself and your wishes for your church, your desire for our uh, heart attitude today through the pages of your word in this text, 
I pray that you would uh, allow us to have fellowship with you personally as we interact with your word. Lord, we do continue to pray for our ministries that are scattered uh, not only throughout the world, but even scattered across this campus. Lord, thank you so much for uh, our, our uh, volunteers in the nursery who uh, give themselves to the uh, infants and toddlers of our church. They're such a blessing to us, and they serve uh, thanklessly so often and uh, with, with just a servant's heart. And so we just want to thank you for them, and we ask that you would refresh them even through the work that is often uh, exhausting and challenging. We thank you for those who are volunteering today in Children's Church. We pray that you would give them uh, a fresh anointing of your spirit so that they can communicate your word powerfully to the young kids of our church. Lord, we thank you for those who are keeping us safe this morning, who are scattered throughout the the campus and uh, keeping a watchful eye so uh, so that the rest of us can worship without distraction. Uh, Father, I pray that you would bless them and and that you would pour out your grace in their lives this morning. Thank you so much for the privilege of opening your word. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thousands of years ago, an unknown Indian sage told a parable that would later be canonized in the great religions of the East. It goes something like this. Six men, all greatly curious and eager for knowledge, set out to learn about one of the most remarkable creatures on earth, the mighty elephant. They had heard about the elephant, but they wanted to experience one for themselves. They had only one problem, though. They were all blind. Not to be discouraged, they asked to be led to the elephant so they could observe by feeling the nature of this majestic animal. The first approached the elephant and happening to stumble against his broad, immovable side, at once cried out, an elephant is very much like a wall. The second walked over, reached out, and felt the elephant's tusk. No, he cried, you're wrong. An elephant is much more like a spear. The third happened to touch the squirming trunk. You're both wrong, he said. An elephant is much more like a snake. The fourth reached out to touch the elephant's leg. The fifth felt his ear. The sixth grabbed the elephant's tail. And each man in turn described the nature of the elephant in accordance with his own limited perception. And so they each begin to argue their respective positions and grow more and more strident until the whole conversation breaks out into a fight. Each of them is partly right and each is completely wrong. The point of the story is something like this. There are a lot of things in life, uh, when it comes, especially when it comes to theology and spiritual matters, where we're a lot like that blind man groping in the dark. We can perceive a part of the truth, but no one sees the big picture. So maybe instead of yelling at each other in disagreement, we should entertain the notion that we're all on to something. Now, if you look at the state of of Christendom, of of Christianity across our country and around the world, it would make a certain kind of sense to say that our varied traditions are sort of like those blind men. What is the church? Well, it's something profound, something we can't easily explain, but of course we do it anyway. And so for one person, the church is a lot like a business. You know, that makes sense to him because he's a businessman. So he's always looking at the budget and trying to find efficiencies and 
consider how to get more people to give more of their money and so on and so forth. For another person, the church is a lot like a school. They want to know what's being taught, what kind of classes are being offered. Another person might say that the church is like a therapeutic retreat. It, it ought to be a place where people can come and have their spiritual scars healed. Another looks at the church as a kind of community recreation center. It's a place that we have a lot of activities, and you can get the whole family together and have a lot of fun. All these different people with different priorities and perspectives look at one church, and they see different things. The Corinthian Christians may have said that the church was like a professional guild, a place where like-minded people gathered to reinforce the social stratification of the community of Corinth. So in a sense, we're all like those blind men emphasizing our own perception, each partly wrong, or each partly right, but all totally wrong. But there's a problem with that parable, and maybe you've picked up on it. See, the only reason the story makes sense to any of us at all is because we're all in on the joke. We know what an elephant looks like. We know that there really is an elephant. In our text today, what Paul's going to do is help the Corinthians understand that when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, we don't just make things up as we go along, nor do we construct an idea of what the church ought to be based on our own limited perceptions. No, it's the church of Jesus Christ. God built it a certain way. He made it a certain way, and he uh, he wants us to reframe our understanding of the church and of the leaders in the church in accordance with God's original plan rather than just making it up as we go along. There really is an elephant, so to speak. I, I know it's kind of weird to describe the church as an elephant, but you get the idea of what I'm saying. There really is a structure. There really is an essential nature to the church of Jesus Christ, and that impacts the way that we view ourselves and our leaders. Now keep in mind, Paul's dealing with the problem of schism, division, quarreling in the church. Uh, in this larger section spanning chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to the end of chapter 4, he's identified the problem. He's pointed the Corinthian believers to some critical gospel truth that they've missed, namely the centrality and the simplicity of the cross and the need to rely on the Holy Spirit for true wisdom. Now what he's going to do is begin to tie it all back together. Here's the problem. Here's some theological truth. Here's some gospel truth. Now let's look at the problem again in light of the truth that we've just discussed. This is kind of the section that we're in right now. And, before, and, and so what, what he's going to do is he's going to give us three essential characteristics of the church of Jesus Christ. And that's going to help us to reframe our understanding of the church and our understanding of ourselves. Now, before we get into those three essentials, I need to do a little bit of unteaching uh, so that we can understand accurately what this chapter is saying. Because this, quite frankly, is one chapter in the Bible that has been taught very poorly uh, by various people through the history of the church. So let me just say two things as sort of an aside. First of all, let me say that this passage is not teaching something like purgatory. Yes, some in the past have used this very chapter to teach that purgatory is a place that believers go and they uh, have all of the bad stuff sort of burned away and then once they're purified from the bad stuff, then they can go on to heaven to be with God forever. That's not what this passage is teaching. 
Secondly, and perhaps even more relevant to us, this passage is not teaching that there are really three types of people in the world. The unbeliever, the immature or unspiritual, fleshly, carnal Christian, and then the spiritual Christian. That's not what this passage is teaching either. Uh, This is kind of what I was taught growing up, or at least this is what I came away thinking uh, when I was taught growing up, that you uh, start out as an unbeliever, and then you pray the sinner's prayer, and you become a believer, but you're sort of like just at the base package level, you know, and you're going to get to heaven with the base package, but you don't have any rewards in heaven. So in order to get beyond the base package, you have to become a committed Christian. And so people would say things like, you know, I became a Christian. I, I, I prayed to receive Christ when I was seven years old. And then when I was 13, I dedicated my life to the Lord. So, you know, I'm on the third level now. Uh, that's not what this passage is teaching. And I think you'll see that as we go forward. But keep in mind that when Paul says the Corinthians are fleshly, He isn't talking about a category of person. He is calling them out for acting in a way that actually contradicts their identity in Christ. What's more, and this is what's surprising to us, these are people who are attending church every week. These are people who are serious about spiritual matters, and they've actually written to Paul to ask him theological questions, and yet he still says to them, you are walking in the flesh and following a mere human tradition. So these are people who are, are committed to their, to their uh, relationship with the Lord, and yet they're, they're, just, they're confused and they're, they're borrowing from the world's way of thinking. They're not people who are totally ignoring the gospel altogether. Uh, That's not what this passage is teaching. It's not really about the individual Christian, as we'll see. It is about the church and the church's leaders. Paul's going to use some metaphorical language, but the metaphor refers to something specific. And if we miss that, we're going to misunderstand the passage. So we need to understand the metaphor, and we need to understand what the metaphor refers to. So I think you'll see that in a moment. But with all that being said, let's consider the first essential characteristic of the church and its leaders. Notice with me from verses 5 through 9 that the church is God's field and its laborers are non-essential. The church is God's field and its laborers are non-essential. He comes right out and says it in verse 9. He says, you are God's field. Now, you can't see it because of the limitations of the English language. But that word, you, throughout this passage is not singular, it's plural. Uh, In Greek, there's a difference between a plural you and a singular you. And this is plural. In other words, what he's saying is, you, not you individual Christian, but you, church, y'all, are God's field. So keep that in mind. Who is the field? The church is God's field, Indian Creek Baptist Church. What about its leaders? What about the Apostle Paul? What about Pastor Apollos, who came in after Paul was finished and and, and became one of its pastors? What are they in this analogy? Paul tells us, just servants. Just servants through whom you obeyed, uh, through whom you believed. Just laborers in the field. Paul planted the seed. Apollos comes in later. He waters the seed. They're not the ones who cause the growth. God is the one that causes the growth. So if you can imagine in your mind's eye an ancient plot of of farmland, no tractors, no combines, 
just workers and maybe a couple of mules or oxen, they don't have to know a whole lot, right? They just have to be willing to sweat. They're just laborers. And by the way, if that's true, uh, if we are supposed to think of the local church like a field belonging to God and the leaders of the church are like laborers in the field, then, then Paul's able to draw Two really important conclusions from that, okay? So this is what he's doing. Remember, here's the problem. Let's talk about what's true, and now let's apply what's true to the problem. Here's what what he's going to say. If it's true that the church is God's field and the laborers are are non-essential, then first implication of that, the laborers are nothing in themselves. The laborers are nothing in themselves. They're non-essential, If you were a landowner in antiquity, I imagine you could walk into the center of the village and hire as many day laborers as as you wanted, and if one of those day laborers did not work out, then you would just send them home, and you would go find somebody else, and you would use that guy, because the laborers in the field are not essential to the work of of, of growing the crops. You could get all sorts of people to go in and grow the crops. The laborers in the field are non-essential. Now think about how radical that is. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the man who wrote nearly half of the New Testament. This is a man with tremendous educational and religious pedigree. This is a man who is credited with planting not just the church in Corinth, but dozens of others. There were plenty of public speakers and writers in Corinth or Athens or Rome or Tarsus, Paul's hometown, who had done far, far less than the Apostle Paul and who enjoyed much greater honor. And yet here for Paul, even the honors he received were too much. He says, no, don't say I'm of Paul because I'm nothing. The good that you see is not from me. It's from God. It's all about God. So for the Corinthians, the Corinthians to say I am of Paul or I am of Apollos was extremely foolish. These guys are just laborers. They're nothing in and of themselves. Listen, I'm grateful for Paul and Apollos and the, the many pastors and mentors that I've had in my own life. But at the end of the day, we have to make sure we put these guys in their proper place. It's not about them, it's about God. They are not the Messiah, and the minute you expect them to be, you, your faith will falter. They cannot shoulder the load of being the Savior, nor should we ask them to. And the fact of the matter is, that if your faith is tied too closely to a man, then it is not going to last. He cannot sustain that for you. A mere man cannot atone for your sin. He cannot hear your prayers. He cannot incite or invite your worship. I'm not saying you shouldn't be thankful. I'm not saying you shouldn't be respectful. And, you know, part of me doesn't even want to talk about this because I don't want you throwing rotten vegetables at me saying, Jake, you're nothing! You know, I I know I'm going to get a text message from Sam Zettel about that later today. Jake, just encourage you, you're nothing, you're a nobody. (laughs) Just getting back at you for making me pronounce all those weird names in the scripture reading, you know. But all joking aside, that's what we are, any of us. In ourselves, we're nothing, it's all about God. It's not about pastors or small group leaders or seminary profs or writers or Bible conference speakers, even apostles, and even the guys on TV that you like to watch. Paul draws a second application from this image. He says that if it's true that the church is like God's field and its leaders are just laborers, then the leaders aren't just 
nothing in and of themselves. It's not just that they're not essential. They're, they're actually unified in their purpose. Look what he says in verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. They're unified in their purpose. In other words, whether you're plowing or planting or watering or fertilizing, you're all after the same thing. What do you want when you're working in the field? You want produce. You want a crop. You want a harvest. It's not about this person's job is more important than that person's job because all the, per- all, all the people's jobs are important. They're all after the same thing. Think about it this way. Some of our members care for babies in the nursery. Others are teaching first and second graders in Sunday school. Others are teaching teenagers. Others are teaching young adults. Another teaches seniors. Another ministers to the nursing home. We're all doing these different things, and we act like they're really different. Sometimes we even act like those priorities are competing with one another. But the truth of the matter is we're all doing the same thing. We're all just ministering to people in the context of God's church. You think a thousand years from now you're going to be worried about whether we spent too much energy on the young people and not enough on the old people or vice versa? No, we're all going to be in eternity at that point, whether we're young or old. See, it's not about this person's ministry or that person's ministry. All God's workers in God's field are one. We're unified in the same purpose in order to achieve the same goal. What is Paul doing here? He's rebuilding the Corinthians' understanding of the church. It is not a professional guild. It's not a philosophical school. Get those images out of your mind, he says. The church is God's field, and its laborers are non-essential. Second, notice with me how Paul's metaphor shifts a little bit in verses 9 through 17. Here's essential characteristic number two. The church is God's building, and its builders are accountable. The church is God's building, and its builders are accountable. Look again at verse 9. You are God's field, God's building. Now, Paul's going to go on to break down this analogy a little more, but keep in mind what he's clearly stated. Who is the building? Me as an individual Christian, right? No. He says, y'all are the building. You are God's field. You, plural, are God's building. He's not saying that your life is like a building. He's saying that the church family is like a building. This isn't about the individual Christian. It's about the church and the way its leaders minister in the church. So the church is a building. Notice that Paul has a distinct role in the building. He, uh, he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, literally a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Uh, it will help us if we remember that in antiquity, great buildings often took generations to complete. Uh, You think our building project is taking longer than you'd like. Uh, But back in those times, it was kind of like, hey, you know, we're ahead of schedule. I think we might be able to complete the building before my grandchildren die of old age. You know, this is great. But Paul has this unique role, and he, once he's finished, he leaves it to somebody else. He lays the foundation. What's the foundation? He says it in verse 11. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the foundation, particularly the message of the cross. So go back to the previous context. What did he say? When he first came in to Corinth and he was preaching, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him 
crucified. The message of the cross is the foundation of the church. You can't build any other foundation than that. But then Paul left. He moved on to build the foundation in another city, and other people are assigned to build on the foundation. So if you're keeping track, there aren't any apostles anymore in the sense that Paul is an apostle. The foundation has already been laid. The apostles have already given us the New Testament. They've given us the message of the cross, and they've given us what we need to build on top of that. We don't go out and build something different from what Paul has built. And then later, Apollos comes in, and he's one of the pastors of the church, but he doesn't need to teach any differently from Paul. He's supposed to build on the foundation too. And all of the leaders in today's church, whether you're a CG leader or you're a ministry team leader or you're a Sunday school teacher or you work in the nursery or you're an elder or a pastor or a deacon, all of us are supposed to build on the foundation that's already been laid. And Paul says whoever is going to build on this foundation needs to take great care how he builds because the building has an owner. And one day the owner and chief occupant of the building is going to arrive. And there's going to be a building inspection. And Paul says, I need you to know what type of inspection it's going to be. It's going to be a test, an examination by fire. So anything we build on top of that solid foundation of the cross of Jesus Christ, anything that we build on there that is flammable is going to burn up. It's not going to last so if you're building on the foundation, you'd better build with something that lasts and can withstand the fire. Now, remember, the primary application is to the church and its leaders. The building is the church. The building is not your individual life. Sure, one day each of us is going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for the life that we live, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. This is a text for anyone who ministers or serves in the church, anyone who exercises leadership in the church, how are you going to evaluate whether you've been successful in ministry in the church? Well, I have a copy of the bulletin, and you know, I, I can see the attendance figures, and I can see how many people came last week, and how many people came the week before, and how many people came this week, and if it goes up, then I've been successful in ministry, right? No, that's not how. That doesn't matter. Well, I, you know, I attend the business meeting and I see how much we took in our weekly offering and then I can see, you know, kind of how much we made the last quarter and whether we spent less than that. And look, we, we have a surplus, so I think we're doing pretty good. That doesn't matter. No, in, in, in fact, any judgment based on any criteria that we could make about the success or failure of the ministry is provisional at best. Because the question is not whether we had a lot of people, it's not whether we had a lot of baptisms, it's not whether we had a lot of people walk the aisle, it's not what our budget looks like, it's not what our buildings look like. The measure of success is going to be when God's judgment falls, does it, does it last? What have I built on the foundation that will withstand the fiery judgment of the living God? And there's a very real sense in which we, are, we have to wait until that day comes and we can judge each other and compare, compare uh, ourselves to one another and, and all these sorts of things, but none of those things is going to make a difference because there is going to be a time when the real judge is going to make an assessment of the work that we've done. And that is the only judgment that matters. So how do we know whether what we're building is going to last? Paul says there is a way. 
It's not by looking at the beautiful results. It's not by walking through the church building and saying, oh, that looks really pretty. That looks really fancy. That looks really nice. No, it's by paying attention to the materials with which we are building. He says, if you're building with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, that's going to impact what will last in the church. Your job, builder, is not to assess the work. It is to build with materials that last. What are those? Well, it's everything that Paul's already said, right? It's the message of the cross, and then it's the wisdom of the cross applied to everyday life. And he says, if you're building in the church with stuff other than that, if you're trying to build a following on things that are not having to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, that's going to burn up. If you are building uh, on the foundation of Jesus Christ and you are using the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives to apply the the wisdom of the cross to to everyday life, that is what's going to last. Why is it that a lot of outwardly successful ministries aren't going to last a millisecond in the fire of God's judgment. It's because they're about something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. May it never be that I spend my life studying God's word and leading in God's church and inviting people to participate and building a whole ministry only to learn that in the end it was all worthless because I made it about me instead of about the Lord Jesus. Because what Paul is going to reveal in verses 16 through 17 is going to completely, totally reframe our understanding of the church. Do not miss this. This is so central to everything that he said in all of these chapters. The church is like a field. The church is like a building. But it's not a generic field. It's not like a generic building. In these two short verses, he is going to sort of pull back the curtain and show us the true essence of the church. So Indian Creek, this is essentially, fundamentally, what you are as a church. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that you, plural, you, all of you, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That is you, plural, not singular. It's y'all. You all, as a community, are nothing less Then the garden sanctuary of God, the image of a field and the image of a building, they're really pointing to the same image. It's the image of the temple of the Lord. This is the garden sanctuary of the living God, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in the earth. And if we let that sink in, if we we let that shape our understanding of who we are as a church, we're going to see that what Paul is imparting... uh, to us here is is some of the most profound truth that you could ever come across. And if we allow it to shape our understanding of the church, it's going to have a dramatic impact on the way that we sort of do business as an organization. So please understand, first of all, that Paul isn't sitting there at his desk with his quill and his parchment and leaning back and saying, you know, I wish there was some illustration or image that I could think of that would help the people understand what to do as a church. Oh, I know, the temple. No, that's not what he's doing. He, he, it's not an afterthought. This idea of the temple is central to what God has been doing from the very beginning. From the very beginning of time, God has longed to share himself with his human creatures in a created sanctuary. Think all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Uh, the Garden of Eden, God creates this beautiful, perfect, abundant, blessed garden 
he takes a man and a woman and he, he places them in the middle of the garden and he says, I want you to cultivate and keep it and I want you to make it a place that, that I can come and share myself with you in the cool of the day. And, and God wanted to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden, in his sanctuary, and yet they sinned and they were driven from the garden and, they were guard, and the garden was guarded forever by two burning, fiery angels. But it wasn't over. God, in his mercy, still wanted to dwell with his people, so he set his heart on Israel, and he lovingly led them out of slavery. And the book of Exodus tells us that he commissioned skilled builders like Bezalel and Oholiab, who were gifted with wisdom. By the way, that's the the word in the text that Sam read. Skilled, it's the same word as the word wisdom, and if you translated it into Greek, it would be the same word wisdom that appears in these chapters. So what God does is he... He gifts, by the Holy Spirit, he gifts wisdom to these builders to build a symbolic representation of the sanctuary of God. In the middle of that sanctuary, there is the Ark of the Covenant representing God's presence in the sanctuary, and that is guarded by two burning angels. And then when these men finish, the Fire of God's presence literally fills the tent of meeting and they all look forward to the day when it wouldn't be a tent, it would be a permanent dwelling because this was such an amazing representation of the dwelling of God with men. Fast forward several centuries, 2 Chronicles 7, after God had promised to David that his son would always occupy his throne the wisest man who ever lived, endued with skill by the Spirit of God, begins to build with gold and silver and precious stones a sanctuary for the living God so that the people of God might share fellowship with the living God for all of eternity. And what happens when Solomon finishes the building in 2 Chronicles 7? The fire of God's presence descends and God is with his people and yet they look forward to the day when it wouldn't be an earthly building but a heavenly building. Of course, we know the story. Israel sins. They're led into exile. They come back. They rebuild the temple, but it's just not the same. All the Israelites understand that it's just not the same thing, and they long for a day in the future. And so all of Israel, including Paul, growing up in Tarsus, they know that the time when the fire of God's presence would once again fill the temple lays in the future. Malachi the prophet talks about this in Malachi chapter 3. He says that the, the Lord's refining fire is once again going to fill the temple and it's going to purge out all the wickedness and the rebellion so that the righteous can fellowship with God once again. And then one day Paul meets a man named Jesus on the Damascus road. And he learns that his longing for the temple of God and the presence of God is fulfilled in this one man, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he learns that Jesus had sent his spirit not into a building, but into a people called the church of God, made up of Jew and Gentile. And he came to understand that just like the spirit gave wisdom to Bezalel to build the tabernacle, Just like the Spirit gave wisdom to Solomon to build the temple, God was giving wisdom to the apostles and the prophets to build another temple called the Church of Jesus Christ. And God, in this text, we see that one day his fiery presence is once again going to return 
and, and, and not symbolically, not temporarily, but actually and permanently, and the dwelling place of God is going to be with men, and the rebels are going to be purged away, and the faithful are going to live together in the new Jerusalem, this gigantic, globe-sized garden sanctuary, and all of his servants will serve him, and, and it, it will be like the holy of holies come down to earth, filled with the tree of life, descended from heaven to earth, and the people of the king are going to live with him forever in sweet fellowship. Guys, this is God's whole plan. This is what he's wanted to do from the beginning, to share himself in fellowship with the people that he created. But in order for that to happen, we've got to be holy. We've got to be pure. We need to build on the foundation with things that are going to withstand the judgment of God. And the Bible's very clear, folks, that there's only one thing that's going to do that, and that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came into the world, perfect man, son of God, he lived obediently to God's law. He earned God's favor. He kept God's covenant. And yet he went to the cross and bore the punishment that sinners deserve so that we could be holy. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that he bought the church. And he's carving out for himself a people. And he's making a temple for himself to dwell in. And, and we already have the down payment of that in the person of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the living God. And the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And he says to the Corinthians, you. Yes, you. You imperfect, immature, ragtag bunch of ruffians who still need to grow up. You are the fulfillment of God's greatest ambition to share himself with humanity in perfect, permanent fellowship. You're the temple of the living God. So you're not just a field. You're God's prized garden. You're not just a building. You are the temple of the living God. You're his dwelling. And so when it comes to your leaders... When it comes to the people who build on the foundation, who minister in the church, anyone who interacts in any way with God's temple, if anybody corrupts, if anybody destroys the temple of the living God, God is going to be jealous for his temple, and he's going to destroy that person. This is what the scripture teaches. Everybody better be careful how he's building in this building because this is the temple of God. Can you imagine gathering in the New Jerusalem and saying, hey, you know, it's nice to be here in the New Jerusalem, but where's Paul? I want to be with the Paul party because I don't really feel comfortable over here with the Apollos crowd. I need to get over here with my people. That's not how it's going to be. We're not going to be worried about which teacher led us to, you know, the next level. It's not going to be about where's pastor so-and-so. I better find him. You're not going to be thinking about that. You're going to be thinking about the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine walking the streets of gold and taking a sledgehammer to one of the buildings? You wouldn't dare do that because you just are glad you're there. That's God's sanctuary. But are we careful not to hurt or damage the church of God? After all, we're his temple today. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. You say, well, the more I think about it, the more I'm a little bit scared to be nominated as an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher. Good. Right? 
because this is God's church. This is God's temple. You'd better check your motives. You'd better make sure your teaching is in line with the word. You'd better not even think about using this beloved congregation for your own gain because the the, the chief occupant of the temple is going to come and the fire of his judgment is not going to spare. There are a lot of ministers today. I say there are a lot, but they're really, most ministers are not this way, but there are a few notable examples. Grinning through freshly whitened teeth as they prance around a stage in $1,000 shoes and sign book deals worth tens of thousands and are waited on hand and foot by sycophantic crowds who will one day stand before the judge. And they're going to look around, where's the crowd? And they won't be there. And, and they, they might be saved, maybe, but it'll be like being saved out of a fire. They will have nothing to show. But let me tell you what else this passage means. It means that if you showed up, folks, listen, this is important. It means that if you showed up on the temple job site and you did your best and you labored faithfully and you don't feel like you have anything to show for it, but you built your ministry, you, you served in the temple to the best of your ability using the wisdom of the word of God, then that ministry, folks, is priceless and eternally valuable. You say, I've served Christ for decades and I've seen a lot of people fall away, but I've only see a few, seen a few stay faithful. Those few are priceless. Maybe you don't feel like you've seen any fruit, but if you are building with the wisdom of the cross, then one day when the fire falls, you will see that you were wise. You'll see that you didn't waste your life. You'll see the overwhelming, unsurpassed, uncountable worth of the materials that you were using to build. All my ministry to the kids, I don't feel like I have anything to show for it. All my ministry in the nursing home, I don't feel like I have anything to show for it. All my ministry in an institution that didn't last. But the people will last forever. You worry about the building materials, God will take care of the building inspection. The church is God's field, its laborers are non-essential. The church is God's building and its builders are accountable. Thirdly, the church is God's inheritance and its leaders must be humble. The church is God's inheritance and its leaders must be humble. Paul ties it all back to what he's been saying for the last two chapters. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I graduated from such and such Christian college. I used to go to Dr. So-and-so's church. No offense, but who cares? If that guy cares, then he's a fool. If He probably doesn't care. He wants you thinking about Jesus, not about him. 
God sent a lot of wonderful people into my life, and I respect them greatly. I'm grateful for them. But anything good in them came from Jesus, period. That doesn't mean I'm not accountable to them. That doesn't mean I don't heed their counsel. It does not mean we need to go off on our own and not have any accountability. That is not what Paul's saying. But it does mean that I don't expect them to be the Messiah. They don't want that. They can't be that. Let no one boast in men. Why? Because those guys, those leaders, belong to you, church. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. You know what happens when you hitch your wagon to just one human leader? You miss out on the blessing and the gift that all those other leaders are. You're shortchanging yourself. Sometimes people come to me, they want to do some sort of ministry, and at times it's like they expect me to say, yes, like yes, you can sing a solo, or yes, you can teach a class, or yes, you can preach on a Sunday, or yes, you know, whatever, just because they want to do it. It's like it's about self-fulfillment. But folks, none of us ministers in the church for our own benefit. We don't belong to us. The church is not for me. We're here for you. And, the, and if it doesn't benefit the church, then it doesn't need to happen. The moment I am no longer a benefit to the church is the moment I need to say, okay, that's it. Because the church isn't here for me. The church isn't here for our elders. It's not here for our Sunday school teachers or our musicians. The church, we're here for the church. All things are yours, the world, life, death. These are things that would keep you from Christ, but they all belong to you in Christ. You own them now, church, the present, the future. All of it is yours. You know why Christ gives you those things? Listen, why does he give you all of that? Because you are his. And guess what? Christ is God's. All of it's to the glory of God. All of it's God's treasure, God's inheritance, God's reward. He gets all the glory. What about the leaders? What about Paul or Apollos or anybody else? Well, they'd better remember to stay in their place. See, the Corinthians had gotten it exactly backwards. They had said, let's build a ministry. Let's build the church so that the groups of normal, average, everyday people are for the leaders. And by the way, yeah, God is there too. That's upside down. No, it should be this. Here's the leaders, therefore the church. Here's the church. It belongs to Christ, and Christ is God's. It's all for God's glory. See, if we can get into our minds that the church belongs to God as his temple, as his garden sanctuary, as the very thing toward which he has been working from the very beginning, the very thing with which he will continue to work until the last day, then it becomes very clear how we ought to relate to each other. It becomes very clear how we ought to relate to our leaders. Paul's going to get into specifics in the next chapter. We'll get into that next week. But let me ask you this. Did you know that God's main goal in the world, his main ambition is to have fellowship with saved human beings in all of eternity in the new Jerusalem? Did you know, and by the way, did you know that this may be why your life is empty. Because God's created you for a certain purpose. He's created you to have fellowship with him and you live your life as though he doesn't exist. Is it possible that 
that's what you're missing. That you're living as though God doesn't exist, God doesn't care, my life is all about me, I chart my own course, I, t- I make my own pathway. And what you need to do is turn around and say, you know what, I was wrong. I need to be forgiven. I need to be rescued from the way that I've been. The way that we can do that was only through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only because he took the punishment and the judgment our sin deserves on the cross. And the Bible tells us that whoever believes in him has the right to be called the son or the daughter of God. The only way that you can become holy, the only way that you can have fellowship with the God who made you for that very purpose is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would just invite you, if you are not in him, if you are not a believer in Jesus, please Don't leave here today without getting that settled. Please become a follower of Christ. I hope today, if you're not a Christian, you sense that great need. But maybe you're here today and you're a believer and you've been building your life, your ministry out of stuff that just isn't going to last. And and, and you you want to change that. The Holy Spirit's convicting you about that. Maybe the Holy Spirit's convicting you in this way. Here you are in God's temple, God's church. And you're harming the temple through bitterness, through complaining, griping, through putting other people down, through gossip. I don't know. Maybe you say, Jake, I've been standing in the temple and I've been scuffing the floors and denting the furniture because I'm angry and bitter and I need to make that right. I need God's forgiveness today. Folks, God wants to have fellowship with us. And, and that changes the way that we view ourselves as a church. So let's reframe our understanding. There really is a way that God has built this church. It is his temple. It's his garden sanctuary. And he invites us into fellowship with him. That's what worship is. It's when we have fellowship with the one true God and respond to him as he reveals himself to be. So let's just take a moment now and do that together. Would you pray with me and respond to the word of God? Father, thank you for revealing yourself in your word. Thank you for revealing that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, most of all, thank you that that this is not the end. That it all points to a day when you return, when evil is eradicated, when the forgiven saints who have the Holy Spirit who have the Lord Jesus Christ, are welcomed into fellowship with you forever. So Lord, I pray that you would orient us toward that day, orient us toward this truth, and change the way that we live. Change the way that we think about one another. Change the way that we think about our church and our leaders, the people who taught us the word of God. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be faithful occupants of this temple because this temple is really for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.